Where we talk about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. And mine's Alicia. And we are your hosts, as always. This time, I'm going to take you into a little historical period that we have been in this season the 16th and 17th century uh, Spanish New World Exploratory Experience. It's an experience. It sure is. Yeah. It's going to be an experience. I'm on some cold and flu medication. (laughs) We've just had some garlic naan. We sure have. And I'm going to tell you about the Lieutenant Nun. Not the Lieutenant Nan. No. We just had Nan, but not the Lieutenant Nan. We had garlic Nan. Yeah. This is the Lieutenant Nan. They're different things. Very different things. So she's a nun. Yes. A Um, militant nun. Often soldiers are not bred in convents. No. So this is an interesting story. The thing about this woman, whose name is Catalina de Arauzo, she was from Basque country in Spain. But the thing about her is that really we know that she was real. We know she was a real person. Yep. She existed. Yep, not a legend. She was born and she died. But look... To be honest, a lot of what we know about her we have to take with a pinch of salt because she wrote an autobiography okay. or at least dictated her autobiography, but it's quite sensationalist and scholars are a little bit divided on how much of this autobiography is really true. We get that a lot, though, with these women, don't we? Like, um, if you're going to sit down and write your autobiography, you want it to be something special. Well, I mean... Also at the time, okay, so we are, just for the context, we're talking about 17th century Spain. This was a sensational story. We firstly, Catalina de Arauzo was, to put it bluntly, a cross-dressing, sword-fighting lesbian. Ah, oh, bring it on! We've, you know, if anyone uh, was lucky enough to come along to our live show with Julie Daubeny, I'm sure these two women would have got along famously. Actually, yes, they would have. <laughs> yeah. probably would have made. They basically had exactly the same subtitle to their lives yeah cross-dressing sword-fighting lesbian lesbian. catalina can also add although they did both spend time in convents oh my god yeah similarities so much catalina she did write her memoir and something i just want to quickly point out so this is where most of what we know about her comes from okay so she transgresses a number of boundaries okay so there's not just gender because she was a woman she cross-dresses a man and look scholars debate whether she was a cross-dressing lesbian or whether she would have been a transgender man the truth is we don't know her autobiography her autobiography suggests that she was like a cross-dressing woman. She was a woman of multiple identities who took on identities as she needed them to do what she wanted to do in her life, which suggests more of a kind of playful kind of performativity of gender as opposed to being a... Identifying as yeah, a man. That's yeah, right. Yeah. But we've, we, we've come across a few of those kind of women before in DVD yeah. podcasts as well. Those women who, in order to get by in the world and in order to actually do what they want to do in the world they present as a man, not yeah. because they identify as a man, but because in presenting as a man it allows them to move in the, in a man's world. Because exactly, in we're talking 16th and 17th century Spain and South America here. So firstly, this is Spain at its finest, and I say finest in an economical sense, yeah. but not necessarily in a moral sense. No. Um, the <laughs> empire was huge. They had taken over everything and they were rolling in money. But it was also a place where gender normativity was very strictly enforced and encoded. So men and women were, of course, expected to be certain things and refusal to conform had really huge consequences. And some of those consequences involved death. And this is another thing that makes Catalina's story so fucking insane because of what is going to happen one day with the Pope. We're going to get there eventually. (laughs) One day with the Pope. One day, some real... Is going to go down with the Pope that's going to blow your fucking mind. All right. Okay. 
So we're going to get there. I'm looking forward to it. Women within this context, of course, were probably goes without saying. And look, these are issues that we've touched on before. But, you know, their their places safeguarding the home, the hearth, pumping out those babies. I mean, these Pump are them out. Cath- Pump them out. Catholic women as yep. well. You Populate know? the world. <laughs> like religious iconography in Spain really valorizes this idea of womanhood and what womanhood is supposed to be. Like the Virgin Mary is such a potent image during this time Mm. but the virgin mary is also an impossible image for women and i really want to make that clear as well because of course she is a virgin mother which is foremost of course women are supposed to aspire to be her and all men want women to be her but of course no woman can be both a virgin and a mother at the same time but only to the fact that you can't be both, yeah. you better be one or the other, mm-hmm. otherwise you're in trouble. Men, of course, masculine identity was also very rigid. This is a time of exploration and nation building, and so it's not enough to just be a provider and that typical kind of masculine father going out into the world, earning the money, bringing it back for his family. You've also got to be a manly man. You have mm. to be strong and willful and adventurous and brave. So, of course, for any woman who wanted to achieve subjecthood, by which, of course, I mean be a self-determining person, live their own self... Have some agency in their life. Chase their own destiny, live the way they want. Good luck with that. (laughs) Unless you, of course, defy these conventions. Can I dip my toes into some Freud just for a second? (laughs) I've been waiting all my life. (laughs) Really, though, this is kind of what gender normativity at the time was. Women don't have subjecthood because they don't have a penis. And the only way that they can attain subjecthood is by attaining a penis, mm. which happens when you give birth to a son. Yeah. And then they live vicariously through their sons. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's all the point that I wanted to make. This is the context that Catalina is entering into the world in without a penis is basically thus without subjecthood. Correct. Okay. Yeah. She's merely an object. That's correct. Yeah. Thanks, Freud. It's really important because there are so many issues that arise with gender, gender performativity and sexuality. So I wanted to kind of set the tone before we jump into her life because it's going to be important later on. Bit of framework for us. Exactly. Back to Catalina. We don't know a great deal about her life except that she was a person, including the date that she was born, which... Maybe it was in 1592. Maybe it was in 1585. Yeah. Um, it was the 10th of February, 1592, according to her baptism certificate, although her memoir states that it was 1585. I've written 1985 in my <laughs> notes. She was born to Captain Miguel de Arauzo and Maria Perez de Arte Cararaga. They were in San Sebastian. Let's just leave it at that. Sure. Okay. San Sebastian in the Basque province. Mm-hmm. She had two sisters and four brothers, the eldest of whom was already in South America by the time Catalina was just two years old. And her other brothers eventually ended up there as well. Okay. As soldiers? As Yes. Yeah. That is correct. And the soldierly thing, both her brothers and her father must have had quite an impression on little Catalina because while her two sisters were probably, you know, dressing up in their frozen costumes and singing along and being fairy princesses, she was... <laughs> Frozen costumes? <laughs> yeah, obviously, that's anachronistic, but let's <laughs> clearly imagine sure. an uh-huh. 16th century equivalent. Yeah. She was, you know, Arya Starking up the place, you know, wanting to be a little soldier. But, you know, this is Basque country here. Baby and little girls don't get to be soldiers. And um, when she was just four years old, Catalina was sent to a Dominican convent in San Sebastian where her aunt was the prioress. And this is, look, this is typical of how many of our women have grown up or been sent to convents? Convents have featured many times. So many convents. A lot of convents. It was just part of your education, really. Was it one of those party convents? We've had party convents It was not, unfortunately, a party (sighs) convent. Most girls, especially of this class, were sent to convents to be educated. We've already established this. But the thing is, is that Catalina, she's no typical Catholic girl. She doesn't have any ambitions of growing up to be a good little Catholic wife and sewing and darning and cooking and tumbling out a hundred babies tumbling out yes that was descriptive (laughs) i imagine them like in the monty python you know where she's just at the sink and the baby just tumbles out of her anyway let's see how much monty python we can get in this episode (laughs) well maybe a bit is there some spanish inquisition (laughs) that's pushing it but look she was a bit of a rebel and the nuns 
couldn't control her very well. So as she grew up into a, a little Catholic lady, you know, with her boobs and pubes and everything, the, <laughs> basically what I'm suggesting is when she's barely hit puberty, because yeah. this is what happens, she was 15. Mm. Unlike all the other girls who get sent off to get married, they were like, mm, no, you got to stay here and take your vows. And in fact, she got sent to another more strict convent because she was so uncontrollable. But despite this, she was still pretty feisty and she got into a fight with another nun. Oh a my God, nun fight! Nun fight! Nun fight! A novice who was also a widow and apparently also named Catalina who beat her. Oh. Now this, according to her memoir, was the tipping point of uh-huh. her convent life. I see. She decided to forego her vows and escape. And this is also probably emblematic of the type of life that she knew she wanted to lead. This wasn't a life where she would be confined and subjugated, where someone could inflict on her a physical beating. She wanted to be the one to do the beating. She didn't want to be weak and submissive. So formative moment, Mm. you get your ass whooped by another nun. A nun. And you think to yourself, no. No. This will not do I'm not even the kind of person whose ass gets whooped by a nun. That's right. Fuck that shit. That's exactly what she said to herself. Awesome. And so she had the opportunity to steal some keys because her aunt, the prioress, asked her to collect something from her room. And as she did, she saw the the keys just sitting there. And what was she going to do? I see this playing out like a film. Yes. Great. She can't let the opportunity slide. But she's also a forward thinker because she also saw scissors, needles and thread. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she takes those, she takes the keys and she's gone. Yep, yep. Gets the fuck out of Dodge. It was the night of the 18th of March in the year 1600, to be precise, which does lead credence to the 1985, 1585 (laughs) birth date because this would have made her 15 as opposed to 8. Oh, yeah. How would she have done that at 8? Yes. I think 1585 is probably. But also the year 1600 comes from the memoir as well. So Anyway, she says... I shook off my veil and went out into a street I had never seen, without any idea which way to turn or where I might be going. She soon found herself in a chestnut grove where she spent three days sewing herself some new threads. (laughs) With the blue woolen bodice, I made a pair of breeches, and with the green petticoat I wore underneath, a doublet and hose. My nun's habit was useless and I threw it away. I cut my hair and threw it away, and on the third night, wanting to get as far from that place as I possibly could, I set off without knowing where I was going." And so, disguised. That was, I did not see that. Yeah. <laughs> what told you? She I didn't think she just go to Chestnut Grove and do some sewing. It was not <laughs> expected. But, this but is, I see the plan. She's formulating. She's made her first disguise. And I use the word disguised at this point in her biography because it does genuinely seem to have been a way for her to escape the convent. And so she lived for some time in the streets. And this is really the beginning of a picaresque kind of a novel, which was very big. I love picaresque. Let's do it. And this is the thing about her memoir that a lot of people question. It's because she takes this sort of autobiographical memoir style, which is attributed to female writers. And this is another one of the transgressions that I was thinking of when I started talking about the ways that various ways that she transgresses in her life. But even her memoir itself is kind of this transgressive genre meshing, bounding Mm. thing because it takes the kind of non-confessional style, which was obviously attributed to saintly women and nuns, and also the memoir style, which is also, I guess, a female-centred style of writing as opposed to the autobiography, that birth-to-death sort of grand adventure thing. Yeah, epic masculine form. Yeah, but she also ties it in with the soldier's biography And with the picaresque novel. And the picaresque novel at the time was just really kind of exploding in popularity, particularly because of, you know. Don Quixote? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's the same time as Don Quixote. So this is the beginning of that picaresque life. Mm. that she led yeah and so for anyone who doesn't know what we keep what we mean by using this word picaresque because i think that's a very sort of english lit kind yeah. of term it basically does just refer to those kinds of novels and stories where you have that a, a character that moves through a landscape mm. moves through and has kind of like these multiple adventures. adventures and journeys and it's all about the journeying through yeah yeah and this is what her life is mm. 
Um, it's also, of course, the beginning of her cross-dressing. Like I said, at the time, it seems like it's a, it's a way for her to be able to exist in the world, a way for her to hide herself, to not get sent back to the convent, and also because she wanted to travel north. Now, in terms of the attitudes to cross-dressing at the time, because like I said, they were very, very strict gender normative roles, but it also wasn't uncommon for women to cross-dress. Mm. And female cross-dressing at the time was seen as being far less sort of threatening than male cross-dressing. And um, a writer at the time, Pierre Banton, comments that, this is great, "'Tis much better for a woman to be masculine and a very Amazon and lewd in this fashion than for a man to be feminine." And so... Amazon and lewd. Yes. And with this also kind of comes this attitude of when women are cross-dressing and hitting on other women, it's also not seen as being very, not super transgressive. Like it's obviously transgressive, but it's not as dangerous. Mm. And Bantom goes on to say, "'Tis better far for a woman to be given up to a lustful affection for playing the male than it is for a man to be womanish, so utterly lacking in all courage and nobility of character. Thus the woman, according to this, which doth counterfeit the man, may be well reputed to be more valorous and courageous than another." Because mm. I suppose the idea is if a man is playing – for a man, you play down to be a woman. Yeah, that's right. Because you're going down the scale. Yes. For a woman to play a man, you're going up the scale. Yes. That's the idea. Because, again, if we come – Got to bring the conversation back to Freud. But this idea of gender, of women being lacking men, mm. it's not even that there are two necessarily – of course they knew that there were two different genders, but they didn't really think of these two genders in the same way that we do now. Their idea of gender was really that women were inferior versions of men. Mm. Yeah, like a monstrous deformity of Exactly. Because that's like Aristotle who basically just claimed that women were just basically a deformity of men due to what was it like a coldness in the womb yeah. or some, some ridiculous notion. Yeah, exactly. That women were basically just a, a failed man. Yeah, and so for a woman, exactly, like you said, it's about moving up instead of moving down, Yeah, which is why a lot of women cross-dressed because it allowed them – to be active and have agency in the world and they wouldn't be looked down on the same. And in fact, in a lot of cases, people knew that they were cross-dressing, but they still treated them with respect because of the, again, all of the associated traits that come with the performance of masculinity. Yeah. So this is how she starts traveling from village to village dressed as a man at first she doesn't really have a lot of money she just sort of eats scraps and herbs so that she like in her memoir she actually just said she lived off of herbs that she picked on the side of the road mm. but she does start to take on some work along the way and of course her convent education at least left her literate which gave her a lot more options yeah that's true because class is another important thing here as yeah. well so she found, soon found herself in a town called Vittoria, which is 20 miles north from San Sebastian. And here she was taken in by a doctor of philosophy. Now this doctor... No, run away. Get out of there. Yeah, get, get away from the doctor of philosophy. Yeah, we should all run away from all doctors of philosophy. Yeah. He wanted to teach her Latin. Of course, she presented to him as a boy. And he wanted to teach this boy Latin. Mm. But, yeah, so he was also apparently married to her mother's cousin, by the way. Was that a random coincidence? Oh, so this is just the beginning of a number of weird coincidences with her relatives. Okay. Yes. This is the first of many, many encounters that she will have randomly with members of her family. Okay, weird. Yes. But he didn't recognize her and neither did her mother's cousin. And so everything was working out on the disguise front until... You know, the doctor tried it on with her. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. him. Tried it on with him. Tried it on with him, exactly. Mm. And so he stole his money and ran away. Um, and I will just say, actually, that a lot of the texts that talk about Catalina use the pronoun she because of the fact that – because it's kind of – I guess some some scholars argue that it's anachronistic to kind of retroactively apply the pronoun he when we don't know for sure whether or not she was transgender. Other scholars, however, use she when they're talking about Catalina and he when they're talking about one of her identities. Mm. And, and so I'm going to be switching back and forth depending on whether Catalina is being uh, herself – 
or talking about her generally. And um, what do we know about from her autobiography of how she spoke about herself? Her autobiography doesn't make very much mention of how she saw her own gender or sexual identity. Mm. And I suppose that the, this is twofold. Firstly, because she couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> because of kind of morality issues of the time. Secondly, though, we have to remember that our concept of sexual identity and gender identity today is very different than it was four or 500 years ago. And she even if she did feel like a man, she probably would not have had, she wouldn't have had the language to articulate that. And that's something to consider. But as I said earlier, scholars are really divided about whether she was a a cross-dressing lesbian or even just a cross-dressing woman. But I think that the lesbian side of her story, particularly in the 18th and 19th century was kind of taken out of her story because of the morality Mm. of that time. And so in the 20th century, her lesbian identity was re, you know, put back into her story. So there's a couple of issues. So firstly, yes, she might have been a transgender man, but we don't know. She refers to herself as she generally, but she uses masculine nouns when she is in a masculine identity. And as I said, she had multiple masculine identities though. Which is, again, I think why maybe some scholars lean away from assuming a transgender identity because it seems to be more kind of opportunistic and performative. Yeah, yeah, tied up to that performance of when she needs to present as a man, she does. Yeah. Yeah. What is more interesting, I think, is the way that she performs masculinity and is accepted as a man Mm -hmm. in the world. I've written my notes using he when... He's he and she when she's yep. she and yep. in a general sense. So Well I just said him then because obviously the the doctor of philosophy thought it was thought a boy. Thought it was a boy. Yeah, that's right. Thought and he was cracking onto a boy. <clears throat> I think so. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, so he stole a bunch of money and ran away. And then Erasso took on a bunch of rotating roles as a page boy to wealthy families under the name Francisco Loyola. And in some ways, it seems as though it was to avoid detection, but perhaps also or also enjoyed testing the boundaries of what she could get away with. Mm. So she started working for Don Juan de Idiaques, whose family had established the monastery in San Sebastian. And when she was working for this family, her own father came to visit. Oh, Yes. So he was I out. I suppose wondering where she'd gone anyway. Exactly. She disappeared all this time ago. He was out looking for his daughter, oh. Catalina. And he came to his friend's house, met Francisco. Oh, my God. I didn't even recognize. Did not recognize Francisco as Catalina. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really interesting. So I think this is when Arasa kind of starts to think, huh, like, I'm getting away with this. Exactly. This is working. What other possibilities might exist in this identity? That's so strange because I would think that even if someone I knew that intimately, I feel like I would still recognize them. But maybe well, you I would wouldn't. think so. But also remember that she'd been living in a convent since she was four. He hadn't so seen her in a long time. Her co- well, they would have still visited their family, but it wasn't like she grew up in the household. Yeah. You know? So visits probably every i don't even know how often not that often probably so he as francisco again actually um returned to san sebastian and risked another chancy moment with his family when he saw his mother in a chapel and served her his aunt in church both without being recognized so yeah yes risky risky business but she didn't remain lucky throughout all of her time as a sometimes page boy, sometimes vagrant. Once in Bilbao, he got in a fight with some guys who tried to assault him. He wounded one of them with a stone, was arrested, and was sent to prison for a month. And this was the first of, I'm going to be honest, many versions of this story. Yeah, right. (laughs) I feel like getting sent to prison would have been problematic for the disguise. I would have thought so also. But nothing in the records. (sighs) Nothing in the records to suggest that it was. And it's not the longest period of time that she's spent in prison either so right yeah interesting so anyway throughout this time she went by a variety of different identities so there was francisco but she also went by the name pedro de orive alonso diaz ramirez de guzman and antonio de arraso but arraso was getting tired of life in spain i mean the new world awaited 
It was one of adventure, of risk, of all kinds of exciting things. And so he found work as a cabin boy. Now, guess what? What? Remember how I said that Arauso has like an family un- members? uncanny number oh, of family encounters? Who's no. like the captain of the ship? Yes. It's her uncle. Oh, for fuck's sake. Really? Yes. How did she manage? That's bizarre. She must have a lot of family members. Yeah, well, again, Catholics. Yeah. Sorry. There's a lot of them probably. Pumping them out. So she arrived in present-day Venezuela at Punta de Aria, where he wasted no time getting into his typical hijinks. He ended up in a fight with a Dutch pirate fleet. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> what? Sorry, I think it's here. <laughs> got into a fight with a duck. <laughs> Probably that too. Oh, a duck a, and a Dutch pirate and fleet. And a Dutch pirate fleet. After slaying them, he left for Cartagena. What? Slaying? The whole, what? The yeah. whole Dutch pirate fleet? <laughs> yes, they won. What? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Impressive. I mean, it was. It, it was wasn't just. And also, and the other crew okay, members. Sure. Yeah. And a duck. Like, yeah. he was on a, a ship with yes, other got men. It. Okay, yeah, yeah. Now I'm with you. Yeah. So after defeating the Dutch, the ship left for Cartagena and Nombre de Dios. The company stayed here for just over a week, loading up the silver to send back to Spain. But Arasso wanted none of this returning to Spain mm. shit. So decided to kill his uncle. Oh, what? Yeah, don't know why that had to is be that, part of Yeah, why is that the only option? I Couldn't he just run away? Well, the thing is, he also told the rest of the crew that his uncle had sent him back to the shore to, I don't know, do something. And so she'd already made an excuse to the crew as to why he needed to go back to shore, but still killed his uncle and stole 500 pesos. Oh, yeah. I mean, you you need something to get by. You do. Arasa decided to go by the name Alonso Diaz Ramirez de Guzman at this point. Because it sounds so fucking good. That's why. It does. (laughs) That's why you made that decision. And made his way to Panama where he took up work with a merchant. But even the merchant life was one that Arasa made into an adventure. Firstly, Arasa and his master were on a ship one day when huge gusts of winds came along, destroying everything. And Arasa had the Save them both from drowning. Next, with another master this time, I think. He had quite a few different masters throughout this time. He got in a bit of a kerfuffle with a young lad in a theatre. And this is actually quite an important moment. So you see, what happened? The theatre, there was this young chap who was blocking Arasa's view. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and This is not a reason to have a fight. Look. Well, I think what happened was that Arasso politely asked the young gentleman, oh, would you please, sir, please move out of the way. This young chap didn't take too kindly to this, and apparently he was the one who kind of, you know, got a bit rough. However, the thing is, Arasso didn't take too kindly to being picked on in the theatre. And so that night, went home, had a think about it. The next day, got up. Lay in bed and was like, I could have said this, wish I'd said that. Yeah. You know what I'm going to do? Got up the next day, went and sawtoothed a blade. What? Yeah. Went and hunted this guy and his cronies down and then cut his face up. What? Leaving him scarred. Oh. Yeah. And then... He found out that the young lad was actually the nephew of his master's mistress. Oh. Oops. Whoopsie daisy. Yes. <gasps> so his master gave Arauso an ultimatum. Either marry his mistress so that, you know, the master and the mistress can carry on with the affair under the guise of respectability. Yeah. Or get the fuck out. Just yeah. GTFO. Okay. Now, apparently the mistress was actually pretty keen on Arauso. A lot of women were keen on Arauso. Like, I don't feel that's terribly surprising. Mm. I feel like a woman dressed as a man would be quite good at seducing a woman, being that they'd be like, hey, I, I'm pretty confident I know what you might be keen on. <laughs> you know? like, that's true. I feel like that's a good way to go. Yeah, I'm, well, I am not surprised that he was popular with the ladies. Well, it worked out for Arasso. So this mistress was, of course, keen on Arasso, but Arasso was like, oh, look, dig ya, but marriage is problematic because, of course, I don't want to reveal my disguise. And so he chose the getting out of town option. 
So Erasa heads off to a town called Trujillo, ready for a fresh start. But this young guy whose face he cut up was not going to just let this slide and he came and followed him there um, and they were going to teach Erasa a lesson. As it turns out, old Erasa, pretty good with a sword, as you might expect, and one of the friends of this guy ended up dead. Oh, wow. Now, there's two different versions of what happened next. Either he took sanctuary in a church until the heat died down. Or he ended up in prison. Either way, not surprising. So eventually he gets out of prison. A lot of his masters tended to bail him out for some reason. They were really just cool with his antics. And so he Well, he probably wasn't the only one having crazy antics. No. I think like, I think that's probably quite common. Like, for, it's pretty full on to think about the fact that it's actually, you know, someone in disguise who's doing all of this mm. sort of stuff. But in general, I don't think it was that unusual for people to get into fights and no. messes and get shoved in jail and have to get bailed out. Well, I think especially that's quite common. Especially this is the new world. Yeah. And as much as it was that the Spanish military was there, it was also, I guess it kind of had that Wild West kind yeah. of quality to it as well. People were there for adventure. Mm. And they were getting themselves into fights. Yeah. So I don't think that would have been that uncommon. Yeah, probably not. It happens but, a lot. But for our protagonist... Well, yes. yes. Rather. Arasso ends up in Lima. Now, apparently, when his old boss managed to get him out of prison, he also got him a job in a shop. He was quite well set up in the shop. He was kind of just given run of the place. He actually had a couple of servants, one of whom I think was actually a slave, um, which is problematic. Like I said, there's a lot of problematic issues with Catalina's life to do with colonization, really. And so Russell's doing quite well for himself as a merchant, doing so well that, of course, he attracts the attention of the ladies. Oh, yes. And, well, what we do know of Russell is it seems like he was a little bit of a scoundrel, actually. And he ended up having an affair with his boss's sister-in-law. Now they were caught together with Arauso had his head in her lap and his hand between her legs and she was combing his hair. What? So obviously quite suggestive. And the way that the the autobiography is written, it's, it seems like it's a little bit wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, like, you know what we were doing. Of course, (laughs) She couldn't write it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's implied. Combing my hair is like a euphemism for something. Quite possibly. I mean, maybe that's just like the dirtiest thing that she could get away with writing. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. That's great. So she was found out in that compromising position and found herself, of course, out in the cold. With nowhere to go, Araso decided to join the army, the Entradas to be specific, which is a, um, a group of mercenary soldiers. Um, and she was shipped off to Concepcion in Chile because the Spanish hadn't been able to subdue the Mapuches. It was here that in another uncanny turn of events. Oh, for fuck's sake, who is it now? Like cousins, brothers, uncles, aunt? Far closer to home. Sister? Brother. Brother. Brother! Her actual brother. Um, remember how her oldest brother was already in South America when she was a very young child? He was here. Yes. So it turns out that Don Miguel de Arraso was the secretary of the governor and thus her superior and also, yes, her fucking brother. What? And again, he didn't recognize her as his sister. This is weird. I mean, the world, I know the world is... Maybe a smaller place at this time in terms of where you go and what you do. But the world is still a big fucking place. Well, I think this is also one of the reasons why some people question the level of authenticity of the memoir. Yeah. Because a lot of this stuff does seem to be exaggerated for Mm. a sensationalist effect. But the story with her brother is probably one of the true stories. Oh, right. This is quite complicated. Let me tell it. Please. Let's see how this one went down. So, um, like I said, though, they had been separated since they were very, very young. And so despite the fact that they were brother and sister, but apparently Miguel did ask after Catalina because he knew that Alonso, as he was going by then, was from the same, was also from San Sebastian. And so I was like, oh, do you know my sister Catalina? She disappeared. And he was like, 
No, I don't know your sister Catalina. I do not know. <laughs> and yeah, so she ended up working for her brother for three years. Oh, wow. But it turns out that what Rausa liked more than working for his brother was his brother's mistress. Oh, for fuck's sake. No, you can't have it off with your brother's mistress. Well, they did. Apparently, the two ended up banging it out for the three years behind... Uh... Banging it out. Yeah, my word. Well, okay. That... I say that. <laughs> it probably was actually like a relatively chaste affair. Maybe. But this is the thing that we don't know. We don't know whether Catalina was having affairs as Catalina or whether she was having affairs as Alonzo yeah. or Antonio or one of her other yeah. identities. So whether or not the people she was with actually... Yes. To what extent they knew. Some say that she she never actually revealed her true gender to any of her lovers. Yeah. Which suggests that, I mean, a lot of her sexual experiences would have been probably much more giving than receiving. <laughs> yeah. Well, because that's it. Because then it's kind of the question of, like, did these mistresses think they were having lesbian affairs or did they think they were mm. having an affair with a man? Well, the whole question of whether or not See, the thing is that, I mean, the, the term lesbian didn't even come into existence until the 19th century, mm. but even lesbian desire between women obviously existed before the 19th century. But it was kind of so, it was technically illegal and it was technically, according to Spanish law, could be charged in the same way as sodomy, mm. but it kind of wasn't because it was such a phallocentric society that the concept of women being attracted to someone who didn't have a penis was really weird. Like it just wouldn't have even really occurred to a lot of people. And so women could carry out affairs with each other relatively invisibly mm. because no one was really paying attention because nobody expected to see it. Yeah. And even if they did see it, they kind of would have just brushed it off assuming that it was just an intimate friendship. Yeah. Well, we've touched on that as well before yeah. in our episodes, That just that concept of, well, the fact that it wasn't a concept. But the difference here is that if she was... so with well, the, well, the difference is whether or not the person she was with knew. Yes, that's right. That's the question. And when they were caught, if... He was dressed as Alonzo. Mm. Then, of course, the threat is real because we're talking about penetration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is really all they're concerned about. Yeah, that's going to come up again later as well. Mm. So that's my question: is were her lovers aware of her real gender? And we don't know. I think a lot of scholars say no. Mm. Probably not. She probably kept it from everybody. Now, obviously, when Miguel found out, he was none too pleased, and the two of none. them got. Too pleased because she was a nun. Good one. Thank you. And the two of them got in a fight. And he, Catalina, was banished to the front lines. Now we get to a genuinely pretty awful part of Catalina's story. And why we might admire the proverbial balls it took for her to uh, manage to live her true self as a man, despite her conservative Catholic upbringing and society. I mean, the Spanish conquest of South America was a brutal. It was fucked. Thing. Yeah, it was. It was really fucked. And Catalina really liked the life that she had as a soldier. Well, I mean, she enjoys cutting people's faces up. Yeah. And then extend. So this is extending now beyond tavern brawls and stuff into areas of conflict against the indigenous populations there. She really did live as a conquistador and she was involved in massacres she vandalized people's homes, she burnt their crops, and of course she murdered them. Mm. And because of this, as Alonso, um, he was developing quite the reputation for himself as a master swordsman and became a celebrated duelist and worked his way to lieutenant. However, and this is interesting, he also garnered a reputation as having a temper. And in one, ba one battle, the captain died and Arauso took control, leading them to victory. However, Arauso was considered by many of his peers to be particularly cruel towards the enemy, mm. which in the context of the Spanish conquest is You'd really... You'd have to be pretty fucking cruel. It's re yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly what this means, but I, th I feel like that's kind of saying something. And actually, he was prevented from being promoted again because he was considered to be 
too brutal. Too brutal. Whoa. So this one time. Yes, you would have to be incredibly brutal for the Spanish to say you're being too brutal. Yes. Holy crap. So in one battle, he managed to cap. No, actually, one of the Mapuche leaders surrendered and he was supposed to bring this um, man back alive but instead he executed him and that got him into a lot of trouble and he was ended up being suspended with half pay so yes really interestingly took to this life of violence and fighting and living up to a version of really hyper masculinity Mm. which is problematic but interesting Mm. do you know what i mean yep Back in Concepcion, he was obviously feeling now pretty bored and was quite possibly kind of scarred and reeling from the realities of returning from this brutality of battle. And so, like many, many, many soldiers, Arauso took to drinking and gambling. And this led, as it often does, to a lot of fighting. And there were two particular fights that ended pretty badly for Arauso. The first was over a card game gone wrong, where frustrated probably drunk, Arraso almost killed a man or did kill a man, depending on the source, and either took sanctuary in a church for six sanctuary. months or was imprisoned in a church for six months. All right. And the second was far more tragic. Arraso ended up in a duel with Miguel. Oh, really? Yeah. Neither of them, apparently it was a dark alley and neither they of them... They didn't realise. <gasps> Interestingly, neither of them recognised each other Again, as brother and sister or employer and employee, Arauso won and Miguel died. And then... So Arauso killed Miguel. Yeah. Catalina killed her brother Miguel. Then realised what had happened and fell into an even worse state. Mm. So it seems like, you know, the conscience is finally starting to catch up with, with him and... He fell into really a pit of despair and and it seems like probably self-loathing during this period and began wandering the city, drinking and gambling even more heavily. He ended up deserting the army and heading north with a couple of other deserters, but they became lost in the Andes. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> because it's the Andes and I imagine they're probably not in a great frame of mind, probably not super healthy and also probably have no idea where the fuck they're going. Yeah, I think this is a mistake. Yes. So the two other men ended up dying. And luckily for Arauso, he was saved and taken in by the owner of a farm, a Native American widow. Now, the widow nursed Arauso back to health. And again, somehow Arauso managed to maintain the disguise while being nursed back to health. Yeah. And when he was healthy again, the widow suggested that he might like to marry her daughter. (laughs) And again, the well, so there's obviously the same problem he had last time he got a marriage proposal, but this time he had a second problem. And that was that meanwhile, while he was resting up, he'd also been seducing the daughter of the local official, one of the local oh officials. And he had also proposed to her. Oh no. What a conundrum. It's such a conundrum. And so he's ended up with two potential brides. And hey, what are you gonna do when you got two, two fiancés? Uh, uh, run away. Run away. But what do you do first? Uh, have sex with them both. Oh, I was gonna say steal their dowries. Steal, yes, steal the money. Steal the dowries and run away. So that was yeah. That's Araso's go-to signature yes. move. Yeah, just to run. Araso, the ghosting yeah. lieutenant nun. <laughs> Is what she really should be called because she ghosted so many times. Mm. <laughs> so during this period, she traveled great distances, vagabonding much of what today is Peru and Bolivia. Mm-hmm. She traveled from the desert Pacific coast across the Andes into the center of the Inca Empire in Cusco to the mining town of Potosi and back again to Lima. Most of her visits to the towns and villages ending up with her leaving after some dispute or another. Probably after seducing somebody. Exactly. Usually Mm. after she seduced the wrong person, had an affair with the wrong person, or of course got in a fight. Mm -hmm. Um, Cut someone up. Not once, but twice she ended up being not just arrested, but sentenced to execution. What? 
and escaped. I'm getting away. I got, oh, there's so many stories, but I've got a really good one. Okay, so one time she actually did some good. She came to the aid of a woman who was trying to escape her husband after he caught her with another man. And so he helped this woman. And so grateful for Erasso's help, this woman decided to hook him up with a job as, ready for it? A fucking bounty hunter. Oh my God, really? Yes. So, <laughs> yes. So, Catalina. That's so great. Dearasso became a bounty hunter. The lieutenant, the ghosting lieutenant nun bounty hunter. That's right. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, it was a short-lived profession. Aww. He had a really successful first run. However, after the first job was complete... Uh, he got himself into another fight, oh. killed a dude, this time the sheriff's servant. Oh, dear. Who he stabbed in broad daylight in the police headquarters. <laughs> no, that's a bad thing to do. That's No one's going to ignore that. Oh. <laughs> and so, of course, he was sentenced to death again. Araso had quite a cunning plan. She was really a very intelligent person. Well, yeah, I mean, gotten this far, so. so. Now, so this relies on you knowing a few things about Catholicism. I'm going to explain. So, during her confession before her execution, Araso was given the communion, right? The holy host. Mm-hmm. She spat the communion into her hand, knowing that because the communion wafer was, like, sanctified, it couldn't just be rejected from her body. It had to be now returned to the church because, of course, this is the body of Christ. Of Christ yeah. And so she appealed for sanctuary, having spat this communion wafer into her hand. And then they're like, well, we have to take it back to the church to scrape this communion wafer off of his hand. What the f- So they brought him back to the church Bought to the tabernacle. And once inside, he was like, hey, sanctuary. <laughs> you can't get me. I imagine it's like, oh, my God. Do you it remember? is the dumbest thing in the world. <laughs> Do you remember like when you were a kid and you're playing Chasey or Tag, for those of you who are not Australian, and you'd call Barley's? Yes. So Barley's, if you're not Australian, is like basically you, oh, I'm safe. You yeah. can't touch me. And you can just arbitrarily say Barley's. Anytime. Or like. Oh, the chair is Barley's. And if you get yeah. to the chair, no one can touch you. I imagine this is basically what she did. She's like, oh, fuck you guys. Church is Barley's. Barley's, yeah, definitely. Oh, my God, that is so And silly. so she hid out there for, like, a month so <laughs> living silly. in the church. And the governor, like, posted his guards outside the church. And then after, after a while, I guess was like fuck this let's just go and they left it's like the modern look equivalent is like like julian assange yes yeah it's pretty much the same thing (laughs) yeah it's just like i'm in this building and you you can't can't touch me because this building is entirely sanctuary and except the difference is that they gave up and went home yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true and so she made her escape and that's how she got out of being executed the second time gosh (laughs) so look she had a bunch more exploits uh cliff notes version okay Araso later joined the militia in lima she survived a shipwreck being captured by the dutch and being abandoned on a beach hundreds of miles away um she also got into some beef in lima with a gang lord while gambling and when he tried to steal her winnings she nailed his hands to the table oh. with her dagger oh my god and then she went on to beat him in a duel that's full on yes but you know what? This life couldn't continue forever. Well, I mean, you can't keep that up forever, can you? <laughs> I imagine there was probably wanted posters everywhere. Mm. And like... It'd it probably... be tiring, just generally tiring. Yeah, I think so. And so she got herself into a bit of trouble and decided to unburden herself. So after escaping arrest one more time, she found sanctuary with the local bishop. And she said, Sir, all I have told your lordship is not so. 
The truth is this, that I am a woman, that I was born in such and such a place, daughter of such and such man and woman, that I was placed at a certain age in such and such a convent with my aunt so-and-so, that I grew up there, took the habit and became a novice, that about to take my vows, I ran off, that I went to such and such a place, stripped, dressed myself as a man, cut off my hair, travelled here and there, went to sea, roamed, hustled, corrupted, maimed and murdered until coming to end up here at his lordship's feet. At, his, at such and such. His such Lord. and such a place and such and such. Yeah. Though that's from her memoir. <laughs> that's a verbatim from her memoir. But I like the hustling that was in there. <laughs> yeah. She did a lot of hustling. Yeah. Uh, the bishop was perhaps unsurprisingly quite astonished. <laughs> um, so astonished that he decided that Catalina's claims needed to be proved. Oh, no. Well, you know, you could just... Slip a nip, couldn't you? <laughs> Just I don't know. That's not how it worked. Oh. So he needed to get the midwives in, of okay. course. Well, that's fine as long as he's not the one doing the no doing the confirming. Oh no no no, that would be as long as the bishop's not the one confirming. confirming. Yeah, in, in, yeah air quotes in that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they did. He did get a couple of midwives in who checked her downstairs, of course, and not only verified Arasso's claims, they also. Proclaimed that Araso was a virgin. Ah, okay. Now, I really cannot emphasize enough how important this was that she was a virgin. And let's be honest, okay, so she probably wasn't a virgin in the way that we today understand the term virgin because, of course, we understand that virginity is not restricted to penetrative sex. Yeah. But, of course, back then, virgin virginity really meant that a penis had entered into your vagina. And so her identity as a lesbian was really not considered at all like i said sexuality at the time completely phallocentric about the penis and so the sexual transgression really only occurs when a penis or a penis imitation is involved and so instead what mattered about her virginity was that it actually made her seem more respectable in the eyes of the church Mm. this means that the church was willing to forgive and aid her because slaying a bunch of dudes, skipping town with dowries, gambling and fighting and whatever the fuck else is fine, even, even if you have a vagina, so long as you've never had penetrative sex. Woo! Keep that in mind, everyone who wants to go on like a murderous rampage. You know, you know what though, it's fine because I'm a virgin. Uh, yeah. I'm a virgin, so all that other shit I did. I've only ever had sex with women, so it's fine. So everything else is great. It's just, it's just like, okay, and also like just to really hammer the point home, according to her memoir, she had murdered 15 people. Really? Well, that's like, okay, so that's murdering 15 people. What that probably means is like 15 Spanish. Exactly. That's not counting at all her time on... As a soldier. Exactly. Not to mention all the times that she just maimed people. Yeah. Like, and so she gets a fucking get-out-of-jail-free card because she's a virgin. It speaks so, so highly to the pedestal that Catholics put virginity on that I I just can't even... (laughs) Oh, you can't quite articulate. I can't. It's anyway. Sorry. At this point, she actually renounced her male identity, and here is where we do come back to some of these ideas about performativity because she renounces her male identity, and where before she had been brave and kind of very arrogant, mm. had a temper. Like you said, that hypermasculinity. Yes. Yeah. She she had hypermasculinity as soon as she renounced that apparently she became very modest and humble she did exactly what the bishop told her to do which was to get thee to a nunnery and she did it she went to the nunnery which she went to she returned to a convent and by this point it was actually a week after her confession and word had gotten around about this lieutenant nun and all of these crowds came to meet her at the convent to get a glimpse of this woman because they couldn't believe that such a thing could exist so she took back the veil waited in the convent for three years living as a nun 
while they waited for confirmation whether or not she had actually ever taken her vows back in the day when she was originally in the convent. Because technically if she had taken her vows, she can't leave the convent again because she was supposed to have been there the whole time. The whole time, yeah. And so they're waiting to figure out whether or not she actually did take her vows. But, yeah, like I said, meanwhile she stayed there for three years and according to all accounts was a perfectly behaved, modest, humble nun. Maybe she just enjoyed the company of so many other women. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Maybe it was a party convent. (laughs) Maybe it was a party convent. Or maybe she was just pleased to have a bit of a break. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All that murdering and gambling. Okay, well, look, look. There was this one, just this one. Just this one time. One time where she did... Oh, slash another guy's face after another card game gone wrong. What, in the convent? Uh, Yeah. What, in the convent? I don't know if it was in the convent, but during her time as a reformed nun. (laughs) Not that reformed. Old habits die hard. Really not that reformed at all. So eventually word comes back from Spain that she hadn't ever taken her vows and she was free to go. So she decided that maybe it was time to head back to Spain. And it was apparently also quite an emotional farewell, which does suggest that, you know, she really did enjoy her time in the company in the convent. She was, when she returned to Spain, again, something of a celebrity. And she took this opportunity to petition the king for financial reward for her services in the new world. This took a bit of time because, again, no one could really verify who she was um, because of the whole multiple identities issue. Yeah, it makes things hard. But she did eventually get awarded 800 pesos a year. Where's the Pope come into this? Funny you should say that, actually, because she's about to meet the Pope. Yes. And again. Been waiting. Yes. So here's where that intact hymen comes in handy. It's again. handy to have one of those. Gee, get a lot if of only cu- I knew. I know, you get a lot of currency with an oh, intact hymen. I wasted that hymen all those years ago. <laughs> so, yeah, so she had an audience with the Pope who gave her special dispensation to continue to live her life as a man. So she was allowed what? to keep wearing men's clothing. The Pope was like, yeah, that's cool. That's right. Again, because... What a progressive Pope. She was a virgin. Yeah. And didn't pose a threat to anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so, I mean, I just always like, really, though, the Catholic Church's gender issues, oh, they're deep. <laughs> Some deep stuff yeah. going on there. Also, though, like, another thing about this. So, basically, the Pope was like, oh, oh, Catalina, you rascal. God bless you. Now you be sure you God, don't do it. God bless you. Don't do any more of that murder. And now you promise me. Remember, that's a sin. Otherwise, you run along, you adorable little scamp, you. I bet you he really did say God bless you. Too. God bless you. Oh, Catalina, you weirdo. Oh, God bless you. Yeah, you sure, can... you can wear trousers. Yeah, as long as you don't let anything get into those trousers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. In fact, maybe they're better because they can't. It's hard to it's get, hard to get into into the transits, yeah. So after this, she wrote her autobiography or dictated it. But she was um, literate, so she could. Well she have, could have written yeah. it herself. And the, the issues with the Scott, the um, authorship of the memoir and how true the memoir are do come down to issues of things like historical inaccuracies, a uh, few contradictions, and also the fact that the original manuscript went missing. So Mm. they didn't kind of rediscover the manuscript until like a hundred years later. And so there are multiple different versions of it that exist and the translations are different. And, you know, there's basically the authority of the original version is kind of unknown, Mm. much like the Bible. (laughs) So, So it also seems that she started to get a little bit bored of Europe, decided to return to the Americas where she settled in New Spain and became a mule skinner. Didn't see that coming. No. I did not see that coming. Lived out the rest of her days in relative peace and obscurity. Skinning mules. Skinning and herding mules. And she did you done... say hurting or herding? Herding. <laughs> Skinning and herding well, mules. Well, she was hurting them. It was them. the same thing really, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. She died in 1650 near Veracruz in Mexico, either apparently of a heart attack while carrying a load onto a boat or among her cargo of mules on the top of Orizaba. 
And that was it. That was her life. <laughs> the end. She's been written about a lot since then. There's been plays about her. So no, how um, old was she then? Like roughly? Because what? what did roughly you say? in her 60s. 1585. 1585 or 92. Yeah. So she would have been around 60, 65. And it was 1650. Yeah. That you said. Yeah, yeah. Right. So she had a good, good innings yeah. for the time. You know, considering everything that she did, it's amazing that she survived that long at all. And died a virgin. Quote, unquote, Quote, virgin. unquote, virgin. Catholic version of a virgin. Yeah. So in those final years working as a mule skinner then, so dispensation from the Pope, that mm. then means that he lived out the rest of his life as a he? I believe so. Presenting as a man. We, and again, the memoir kind of doesn't go this far. So, But yes, I think so, yeah. And we don't know... If we there were any know. other partners, any other women, any other... Not that like, I know. Yeah. No. It's kind of a little bit more obscure after that point. Mm. I guess it's I also not as adventurous after that point. It's so. not as adventurous and also, of course, so many... So much of what we know about Araso comes from the memoir and from the military records. Yeah. And though those don't go that far. Yeah. You know? But so you say that there's like some historical inaccuracies... But I assume that some of the other historical records, like some of the military records, some of the church's records, mm. obviously verify yeah. that a lot of this did genuinely Well, yeah, that's happen. right. They do. They verify enough for us to know that Catalina de Arraso was a real person and that she did indeed travel to the New World, that she lived as a man. But some of the details in mm. the adventures that she had, you know, things like some of the encounters that she had with family members, yeah. some of the excessiveness of some of the things that she claims to have happened. I think a lot of people claim that she may have sensationalized it for just why not? Because yeah. she could. Because like lives then were fucking mad. Yeah. It was a different world. Yeah. Totally different world. And that's actually another thing that I think we need to keep in mind with this story is we do have a tendency to want to apply 21st century thinking to yeah, the right. past. And yeah. so our even our notions of what a memoir is are so different as well. Like like I said, it's kind of somewhere between a non-spiritual confession and a soldier's tale by a woman, which is also a picaresque adventure. So in some senses, as an autobiography, it's kind of marginal, but it also transgresses those margins. Um, is it easy to find? Yeah, it's in print. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I'll put a link to it in the Transla- show notes. So it's translated. translated. Yep. Yeah, right. yep. And I think do we the, know when the translation was Well, called? the most recent translation, I, as far as I know, is from the mid-90s. Yeah, right. Which is interesting because, again, of some of the issues to do with translating yeah. a gendered language into English. And I wonder if contemporary translations would pay more nuanced attention to the way that she uses gendered language and figure out if there is a way that we can maybe understand a little bit more about her gender identity. Mm -hmm. But then also there's something that I find because scholars like so much of the literature written about her really is about debating her gender identity. And there's, I get why we want to understand and I understand the place that it has, but at the same time, it also seems a little bit reductionist to me. And it also kind of, I don't know, seems a little bit gross because so much of her biography and so much of understanding about her gender identity relies on absences, absences in the text, absences in language, and of course, the absence of her physical body. Mm. And do we need to, I don't know, do we need, it just seems kind of gross to me that people are kind of so fixated on her biological sex instead of the fluidity Mm. of who she was and and how much does biological sex actually really in the end have anything to do with what she did yeah that's right that's right and it's really hard for us to know whether or not she would have identified as a man because as I said I don't think that she would have had the cultural like it just it wasn't a concept that she would have been able to understand back then so I don't know that she even would have identified as a man but that's because she probably wouldn't have had the language to identify as a man if she'd grown up in our society maybe she would have Mm. so it also seems a little bit it's difficult to apply that 
way of thinking to her as well because that way of thinking didn't exist for her but it also you don't want to erase it if she did have the opportunity to think that way but at the same time assuming that her lesbianism and her performance of masculinity makes her transgender also erases her identity as a cross-dressing lesbian who just wanted to perform masculinity in order to function in the world so it's really 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 complicated well but it's not only complicated it's also pretty much impossible for us yeah to know yeah and even with the resources that are there you still can't fill those gaps in no really i mean it's a it's 400 years in the past yeah there's very little i think that can answer those questions yes and like i said cross-dressing for women then was not nowhere near as uncommon as we probably think it was Mm. She just happened to be very successful at it and had a very sensationalist life. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, basically. <laughs> and so that's why the, the pronoun issue exists and a lot of scholars spend a lot of time defending their, their use of pronouns. Mm. We can't know for sure. Yeah. So that's why I made the decision that I would use she for talking about her life generally and he when talking about specific things that he did mm. While in a masculine identity. In historical records as a man. Yeah. yeah. But yes, but I think what's really interesting about it is the way that she illustrates, I think her life really illustrates how constructed gender is. The fact that masculinity and femininity, femininity are not inherent in a person's biological gender, but are coded expressions that are enacted or performed, as Judith Butler would tell us, through clothes, through attitudes, through how one acts, etc. And I think this is perhaps why a lot of scholars discuss her in terms of performance, that she performed a masculine identity, because this is how her memoir is kind of written. I think there's a bit of a tongue-in-cheekiness about it that seems to imply performativity Mm. and most of the academic and biographical literature about her does frame her as a cross-dresser yeah and a performer of multiple identities while also acknowledging that she may have been somebody who is genuinely transgender Mm. but it's fascinating though it's a, a, a fascinating story but also it also teaches us how incredibly important uh, concepts of gender are in a religious context. Oh, yeah. Context. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. Oh, my God, so much. Yeah. And also issues of class come into this as well. Like like I said, she didn't just transgress gender boundaries. She also transgressed class. Like she was given hand-me-down clothes from her um, a lot of her masters. Mm. And so she got to wear the clothing of noblemen, which, again, was seen as a transgression because you're – you're going outside the boundaries of your class. But for her, it's a way to kind of climb social ranks and to take on – it's another way of disguising herself and taking on a new identity. Mm. Clothing was hugely important back then because it was so expensive and such a marker, such a marker of gender, class, social rank, all sorts of things. Still is, really. It still is. So anyway, that is uh, Catalina de Arraso. Oh, sorry, this is a long episode, but I had 6,000 words of notes for this episode. Normally for a, for an episode, I have about three to 4,000. So I knew this was going to be a long one. Well, it took us around the world. It took us to a lot of places. Yeah. So, so thank you for coming with us again as we delved into history. I just, I re- I've been wanting to do her for a while because she's, bloody fascinating and a bit of a romp quite a romp i haven't thought about what i'm gonna do next time actually so the world's my oyster it is the whole world's your oyster maybe we'll 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 see where we go next week we'll see where we are when we get there in the meantime we if you want to catch up on previous episodes of course you can find our back catalog on itunes so make sure you subscribe leave us a review it really is the best way for other people to find us And if you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, you can find us. We're at DeviantWomen. If you would like to show your support, you can find us on Patreon as well. We have merch and special bonus behind-the-scenes content for you. And speaking of merch, if you'd like to buy some merch for yourself, you can also find us on Etsy where you can get T-shirts and our beautiful enamel pin. So that's all for us for this week. As always, our massive thank yous to Brendan Davies for the sound and India Hui for the music. And we'll see you on the next adventure. Bye. Bye.